When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I went out for the sentencing. Well, the DA actually bought her plane tickets and motel for the sentencing. You go there and stand before these murdering bastards that killed your son. I don't think I could ever forgive them. I mean, they could rob him. There's no need to kill him. This is Greg Settler. He's talking about the moment the sentencing was handed down for the murder of Jeff, his son. I think I would have got a better sense of closure had they got a proper sentence. The murderers got off of manslaughter instead of first-degree murder. It was premeditated, there's no doubt. I think at least the two main murderers should have got life without parole. It wasn't really just, but, you know, it is what it is. I'm Sam Anderson, and this is the Emerald Triangle. Chapter 6, A Regular Kid from Pleasantville. I have to say, I understand why Greg Settler feels like there wasn't justice for his son. If Zach's telling the truth, Jeff was ambushed in his sleep, stabbed multiple times, and then Michael Caine kneels over him and slowly puts a knife in his throat. If that's not murder, what is? So on a warm summer morning, I left Laytonville and drove more than 1,500 miles across the dusty plains of West Texas to the town of Lubbock, the birthplace of Jeff Settler. I pulled up to a nondescript-looking building on a lonely industrial street, home to the Settler family's contracting business. An older man with square glasses steps out the door. It's Greg, Jeff's dad. Great, so just to start out. He welcomes me into the small, clutter-filled office and introduces me to the rest of his family. I'm Robin Settler, his little sister. I'm Brad. Brad. Nice to meet you. Brad. I'm uh, another brother. I'm Sam. Jeff's mother, Debbie, was there too. She has dementia, so she wasn't able to fully participate in the interview. I know this must be difficult for you guys, so if you ever need to take a break or you want to stop, or like, just let me know. What exactly now are you doing with this story? Well, I told you how one of the defendants is a guy from my hometown. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to do some investigating on Zach and how he became involved in this, and then I also mm-hmm. want to talk about Jeff and his story and how they came together and sort of what led to this really tragic event. He called me just days before this happened. Didn't he tell you something like he and was the happiest he's ever been at that yeah. time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was the last conversation with family that he had. Wow. Yeah, the night before we heard of his death, I just bought a new DeWalt tool set 
I didn't realize I'd be building this casket with it. After hearing the news, the Settler family began the long drive west. When they called you, did they tell you that it was a murder? They said it was a murder, but they didn't like tell us detail, like, oh, he got stabbed in the neck, which as soon as we get told that, I'm like screaming, Brad, he got his neck, his throat cut. You know, I'm like freaking out. And Brad's like, don't fucking tell me shit like that when we're on the fucking like Golden Gate Bridge. Like, I felt like my heart stopped for a second and I felt like I was going to veer off. After arriving in Mendocino, the family started to prepare for Jeff's funeral. The funeral director said he was in such bad shape, he didn't recommend us to view, view him. The state he was in was pretty, was pretty yeah, terrible. So bad. It was terrible. Although they couldn't see him, Jeff made his presence known in other ways, like when Greg went to buy a suit for the service. So I go to the Goodwill and Willits. The suit fit me perfect. And on the pocket on the inside, it said Jeff S. Huh. No Jeff's way. A, a permanent marker Jeff S. I'm like, Jeff, what are you doing? <laughs> Was this your suit? And I'm like, what in the world? Like, he's well, there with us. Yeah. His funeral was literally, honestly, like one of the most beautiful funerals. They didn't have enough room in the chapel. There was probably four or 500 people there. Wow. Did you realize Jeff had so many friends out there? Oh, yeah. I knew it. Most everybody loved him. They referred to him as Jesus. <laughs> was his nickname. Yeah, we have a shirt that they made for him at his funeral, and it says, rest in peace, Jesus, Jeff. Long hair and yeah. He just had a he power did, about he him. Look a little bit like pictures you see of Jesus. I feel like it was because it's, how he was, Dad. He was so he would come. I'm telling you, he would come, and he could make you believe like anything. Like he just had this way about him. He was like Jesus very, almost, you know. Very charismatic. This description of Jeff as charismatic and able to make you believe almost anything reminded me of how Jeff's friend Sean described him as a role model. Yasmin called him a maestro. I wanted to know how Jeff wound up living off the grid, growing pot in California. And talking to his family, one thing was immediately clear. Jeff didn't fit in in Lubbock, Texas. This is a pretty conservative Bible Belt town. He and a lot of his friends They were more radical for Lubbock, Texas, and their looks and all. Earrings, lip rings, you know, things that... He was like a, what was it, like a punk rocker or something? He was kind of a punk rocker, yeah. After high school, Jeff transformed from a punk rocker to a deadhead. He would wear tie-dyes and things, you know. I wouldn't say I was ashamed of him, but I just didn't want my customers realizing my kids were of that culture, so to speak. He never did anything wrong that I'm aware of. Never really got in any trouble other than he got into a little marijuana trouble here. Yeah, uh, my brother's main thing, his only problem ever was always marijuana. You know, in Texas, I mean, back then they would almost hang you for marijuana. If he had told you he was growing marijuana, what would have your reaction have been, you think? Well, I discovered that probably in 04 or 05. He wanted me to come down and build something for him. Uh, At that time, he was out on a mountain that he had leased from somebody, and he was growing. And what did you think when you went out to that mountain for the first time? 
I thought I was going to get arrested and go to jail forever. <laughs> that must have been so different from, you know, your life growing yeah. up here in Texas. I wish he'd stayed here and got into the family business. Because mm -hmm. he had, of all my children, had more of my business smarts than any of them. It bothered me then seeing that him apply it to that business, mainly because, you know, when you're dealing with something that valuable and that kind of money, something like what happened well, to him yeah. could happen. You know, Jeff yeah. didn't own guns and knives. He didn't believe in weapons and stuff. He was real, like, hippie. It is dangerous, Yeah. you know. And it just takes one of that little hippie crowd of yours to turn. You just can't trust people, you know? Right. You know, everybody who I talked to about Zach was like, oh, yeah, he's, like, such a peace-loving person, and you're telling me the same thing about Jeff, you know? And so it's like when you have a community like this, like, how does something like this happen? It was like a mob mentality. Yeah, they just They just sort of all got mad at Jeff. You know, like in the Old West, the mob hangings. There's, like, that one person, and they secretly manipulate the other people to do it, and then... Could that have been Zach? He definitely brought the group together to go up the hill. And what about the mysterious old man who Giggles and Cricket said gave the green light for them to go and kill Jeff? Jeff was a nice guy. There's a lot of people that loved him and, and miss him. Maybe he was just too loving. Maybe that's what it was. He Maybe he loved too many people, him. yeah. Thank you guys so much. It really means a lot that you guys shared this story. Um, what do you think I should do next? Who else should I talk to? You know, I don't know that you could talk to the seven that are accused, but I'd love to hear what they have to say. I want to know why. That's the question on my mind, too. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. As I drove away from Lubbock, I thought about why this all happened. Why did these peace-loving hippies turn on each other? And then I thought about Michael Caine, Zach's friend from back east. According to Zach, he was the guy who actually killed Jeff by slowly stabbing him in the throat and telling him this is for selling bad LSD. I didn't have any tape of Michael Caine. That's because he never spoke to the cops. He lawyered up right away. So I dug deeper into the court records and I found Caine's sentencing recommendation. And there were letters from his friends and family asking the judge for mercy. Dear Judge Banky. Dear Judge Banky. Dear Judge Banky. I am writing to you as a friend of Michael Caine's, asking you for leniency. I would like to tell you about the Michael Caine I know. I am Michael's neighbor, but I would much more like to think of myself as his second mother. 
Michael became best friends with my son. The two boys became inseparable, doing all the good things boys do, building forts, bike riding in our cul-de-sac, going to the pool, skateboarding. Michael's home and my home were interchangeable between the two boys. They were like brothers. I learned that Kane grew up in a small town in Westchester County, New York, called Pleasantville. Dear Judge Banky, while vacationing at Lake George, New York in 1995 with my husband and my two children, we met the Kane family. The Kanes provided a warm, kind, loving, nurturing environment for their children. They were actively engaged in their church, and they have strong moral values. From what I can tell, Michael had a privileged childhood. A loving family, vacations to Lake George in the summer, ski trips in the winter. He seemed like kind of a preppy kid. How the hell did this guy end up in Weed World? Here's a letter from Michael's sister. Dear Judge Benke, Michael has always struggled to fit in. He was always so bright, but had a learning disability, which essentially meant he could not read until second grade. His self-confidence and development were permanently stunted. We grew up in a small town with a small school and a very narrow definition of what is cool. He felt left out a lot. I think he will do anything to feel like he belongs. And I believe that is how Michael is in the situation he is now. So Michael didn't really fit in. Kind of like Jeff Settler. Then I found a letter from one of Michael's friends. Dear Judge Benke, I was shocked to hear about Michael's involvement with drugs. It didn't make sense to me at all. In all the years I knew him, I never once saw him get high or even heard him talk about it. I don't know what his motivations were, but they drove him to the biggest mistake of his life. Now we're getting somewhere. Hello, Peter Tolastic. Hi, Peter. Uh, my name is Sam Anderson. I'm a journalist. I'm calling about Michael Kane, who I think you knew back in high school. Oh, yeah. Why? Um, well, I'm actually making a podcast about the guy who was murdered. And as you know, Michael was uh, involved. Yeah. Um, I'm willing to talk. It really was pretty devastating to me to see what happened. You know, Michael was one of my closest friends. And so I don't think I've ever really processed it. Peter Telesnik grew up with Michael Caine back in Pleasantville. And if you want to be honest, it's hard for me to really come to terms with the verdict. I have such a hard time seeing Michael hurting anyone like that. I can relate. That's how I felt when I found out about Zach. There were seven guys who went to prison for this, and one of them is a guy named Zach Wooster, who was friends with Michael from like the festival scene, and I actually grew up with Zach in New Jersey. We knew each other. Oh. We were on the wrestling team together. Oh, wow. Okay. So Michael and I were also on the wrestling team together. Oh, wow. Peter confirmed what I already knew from the letters that Michael's real problems began with drug use. Sophomore year in high school, he showed up to a football game and had to get put into the back of an ambulance because he was some sort of intoxicated. 
At some point, Kane starts going to music festivals, and that's where he met Zach Wooster. I can see a world where he maybe had uh, a lot of drugs and was going to these festivals to sell them to like fund the lifestyle of partying a lot and affording these festivals, because that's what Zach was doing. Michael um, was at a festival somewhere in the South. And on the way back up, his bus got pulled over. And for some, you know, like crazy reason, he decided to be the guy who sprinted into the bathroom and locked the door because he wanted to flush his drugs down the toilet. But basically, the cops just caught him red-handed, and he had court dates set, and he was looking at um, the penalties he could possibly get. Um, One day, I'm getting calls from his mom, hey, have you seen Michael? And she's worried, and she's saying, no, no, like, why? And he's just isn't anywhere. I told Peter that I knew Michael Caine went on the run to the Emerald Triangle and that Zach followed him out there. Okay, so they knew each other before that weed farm. Correct. They knew each other from the festival circuit. They were into the EDM scene, like the dubstep music, and they were... I know that Zach went to a festival in Virginia and had an incident there. Um, Because you're saying festivals, EDM, but what you're really saying is drugs. Yeah. (laughs) I think so, yeah. He didn't tell anyone where he was going. No. And then I get that article. An article saying that Michael Caine is wanted for murder. Thank you for doing this, because this has always been something that I've kind of just chalked up to, like, the legal system is not good or efficient. They just went for, you know, getting as many people in jail as possible so that they could say that they got someone for the crime. You know, I can't promise you that when you hear this show, there won't be something that is upsetting to hear about your friend, you know? No, no, I totally get it. I doubt I know everything that that happened after he left. Michael, before this happened, was one of, like, the kindest people that I I really knew. And honestly, the whole thing is just like a tragedy. He's the nice guy. And the, the thing with nice guys is like they're always nice, but they bottle up all their emotions and stuff. So when they snap, they can't control their actions. After talking to Peter, I got in touch with Brian Hess, Zach's friend from episode two, because Brian was also friends with Michael Caine. He's the nice, quiet, shy guy who's like, you know, nice and sweet, but like is not the same person who's been on the run who just got robbed of all of his money and is stranded in California and he can't go into anywhere for help. What Brian's saying is the Michael Caine who killed Jeff Settler is not the same person as the regular kid from Pleasantville. He was changed by life on the hill and being an outlaw. The level of viciousness is pretty remarkable. This is the thing I'm trying to get to the bottom of. It was such a personal attack on Jeff Settler. I mean, what's your take on that? Michael probably snapped. I mean, he's stranded out in the woods and stuff, and this guy, he took what that guy did to him personally. Yeah. No one wants to work a whole summer in the heat in the hills, you know, picking nugs with the 
planned that at the, oh, at, when we're done, I'll pay you all the money. Oh, when we're done, we'll pay all the money. He's like, oh, I'm not going to actually give you money. Get the fuck off my property. And the only thing he could do is he felt disrespected that he did all his hard work and, and got fucked in the end. And when he came back from being so angry, he just realized he just literally, you know, killed somebody. And he's probably full of guilt and remorse. At the same time, there's no need to chop a motherfucker up. But at that point, like, you know, they've already gone past the point of no return. That's my guess is Michael is probably like, you know, I already hit the man with the hatchet. He's going to tell people I hit him with a hatchet. And like, you know, I, I, I'm a fugitive on the run. Like, you know, he's he can't go hide anywhere. He can't go home. He's trapped. He's got nowhere to go. And he just ran out of fucks to give. Brian's idea that Kane was changed by what happened on the hill made sense. But still, not everyone who doesn't get paid cuts his employer's throat. I wanted to know how he was changed. What actually happened during those summer months between May and September when they were living and working up on Jeff's farm? I had to find out. And I had a lead. I was on the property a week before it happened. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to tell this guy? Do I tell him the fucking brutal truth? Because the brutal truth is fucked up. Crooked City, The Emerald Triangle is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Novel and Sony Music Entertainment. The series is written and reported by me, Sam Anderson. Our senior producer is Joe Wheeler. Our producers are Alexa Burke, Lee Meyer, and Zach St. Louis. Story editing by Mark Smerling and Austin Mitchell. Our assistant producer is Sasha Baker with additional research by Ivan Devoin. Scott Curtis and Cherie Houston are our production managers. Fact-checking by Dania Suleiman. Mixing and sound design by Daniel Kempson. Our title track and additional tracks are composed and produced by Robert Quijano and Christopher Rose, with additional production by Nicholas Alexander. It was engineered by Peter Ovia and recorded at Moonflower Sounds Studios in Taos, New Mexico. Additional music from Marmoset and Epidemic Sound. Development by Willard Foxton, with special thanks to Indira Bernie, Max O'Brien, Sean Glynn, and Matt O'Mara. Also, special thanks to the amazing studio musicians at Moonflower Sounds. You can continue the conversation with us online by tweeting at Crooked City Pod. If you've enjoyed the Emerald Triangle, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening.